The people they have on this podcast know a thing or two about photography. You would do well to listen to what they have to say. Welcome to the RGGEDU podcast, where Rob and Gary talk and drink wine with your favorite photographers. This podcast is brought to you by Sakonic. Light meters have helped generations of photographers and filmmakers set themselves apart from the rest of the pack by helping them produce consistent results in any lighting situation. Light meters are the common tool used by every lighting master. Head to Sakonic.com and start your journey to becoming a lighting master today. In this episode, we're joined with cinematographer, author, and all-around badass, Barry Anderson. I'll take it. Don't forget director. <laughs> director? Director. The director before cinematographer. Yeah. All of it. That's director a, first. That must be a big business card. <laughs> it is. Well, and, welcome to the new world where we have to do everything all the time. So, Cool. And alongside Rob Grimm, I'm Gary Martin. This is the RGG EDU podcast. I'm always here. We're back. It's day two of NAB. Yeah. We just checked out the show. Well, I guess it's day one of NAB. Yeah. It kind of started yesterday. The expo started today. Well, I think it used yesterday. to be that Sunday nobody nobody did anything. Like, you guys ever eat at the Pepper Mill? No. It used to be, like, the thing. Everybody came down Sunday night, nobody did anything, so we'd all go congregate over at the Pepper Mill. And uh, so is your thing cutting yeah, in and out? Yeah, my cutting in and out. I, I broke something. You guys were fine before I got here. I get here and I break it. God damn it, Barry. All right. This is why they don't let me touch the cameras. Yeah, don't. Fuck anything up. But, lit- <laughs> but literally, the pepper mill is the place. All right, I'll take All it right. from, uh, I guess it is the this the first day. Yesterday was, I guess, kind of a setup day, which we were, we were working. Yeah. So day one is done. Yeah. And now we're, we're, we're on to the night events. It was exhausting. Uh, Barry, how do you, Barry, how do you use these events to your advantage? What do you do here? Uh, well, I used to, I mean, I've been coming down, I think this is my eighth consecutive year. Uh, wow. I used to come and just basically walk around and introduce myself to people. So if I was interested in a product, I went and met who made the product or who marketed the product, ask them because one of the things I was very frustrated about is when, you know, I used to work in film and video cameras, then the DSLR revolution came out and it had all these accessories, but you couldn't yep. trust any of them. So you'd like order one, it'd show up at your house, it sucked. And then you try to return it and they wouldn't take it. So you'd like, there was no good way. You couldn't go into like Best Buy and try everything out. So I'd come here and take a look and then, you know, get your hands on it for a couple minutes and go, oh, I could use this or no, this is totally not worth my money. Um, so I did that. And after several years of kind of doing that, I wrote the DSLR Filmmaker's Handbook. And then people, I, it was kind of more of an accident, but I turned out that I started doing some teaching because people didn't know how to use these cameras that came from the traditional video background. But what I did is I showed what the real world looked like. So I would actually show people how I did something. And then in doing that and admitting that things didn't work all the time or there were problems, they liked kind of that real world versus just a sales technique where, Oh, it's great. Yeah. People appreciate that. And then, so just over time, more companies that, you know, I'm speaking for Tiffin this year, I'm speaking at the Teradoc broadcast booth. There's always people that are like, Hey, we've got a live learning stage. We've come do some stuff uh, at our booth. So I now have it kind of a hybrid where I got to run around and meet everybody. I also have to go look for stuff. Actually, this year I'm uh, uh, doing it again for a production hub, but they give out awards. So I'm on the group that will nominate new products. So part of the challenge to myself is even though I'm busy, I want to go see what is something cool that might be worth looking into and buying. And so it keeps me, you know, looking at everything on the show floor. So you wrote the DSLR Filmmaker's Handbook. How relevant is that book? Does it is it pretty dated? No, is that it's not. You it's, keep... just, it's just in uh, the version two. It actually sold so well, We I did an update to nice. it. So nice. I feel for such a book like that, you're like, oh, that's kind of odd. So what I did when I was writing the original one, I was one of the last 
original books to be written on DSLR filmmaking. I already got it out there really quick. Well, mine turned from kind of the tips and tricks of doing DSLR to like the masterclass. It's like over 500 pages. So it's, wow. it's a textbook that they actually use at a lot of colleges to teach now. Um, and what I try to do is make all the content fairly neutral to like a camera. So we're talking about color theory. We're talking about lenses. We're talking about composition. We're talking about lighting techniques. So a lot of it is, hey, if you used to have a 5D2 and now you got a GH5, just fine. You know, if you could decide to move off DSLR and you're into a traditional video camera and FS7, a lot of what's in there is relevant. Um, and I did that on purpose, which is why it took so long and why it's so thick. But it's more legacy than it is topical. So that's good. It sounds like it's it's very involved with how you make images or how you make you know moving images rather than just this is the equipment and how you work the equipment. Correct. It's about composition. It's about lighting. I mean, as much as you can in one book. I mean, yeah. I have, if you see my, you know, I don't read but you see my bookshelves at home. I have like tons of books because over the years, you know, you're learning about composition, you're learning about lighting, you're learning, you know, and it's very deep. But what I try to do is take the most useful information. So if you're really new or you're moving from a camera platform to the other, you can kind of just be like, okay, this is a good refresher, or I now know how to get started. And then you can kind of improve from there. So it's kind of a beginner to intermediate. It's a good step-by-step. -step. What were the steps to get your book published? Uh, that's a, <laughs> did you, how many no's did you get before you got a yes? Literally, it's kind of a funny story. I, I, one, one yes. One proposal, one yes. So wow. One for one. Ben one for, a thousand. Well, this is, this is, this is the a good ego average. side of me. If you know me, I do have an ego, but I'm terrible <laughs> at telling or selling myself. But what was funny is I had a bunch of friends that had written Photoshop books, and they were more in the graphic design business, and they all... Okay. What is the language like on this? Are we okay to say naughty words? Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, sure. They yeah. bitched about it all the time. Like all the time. They're like, oh, this is the worst thing ever. And then they'd be like, I'm writing another book. I'm like, why are you writing another book if you complain about it? <laughs> like, I don't understand. So uh, when it came time and I'm like, you know what? I don't really want to write a book, but I'm like, if I'm ever going to write one, I felt like I like bought the 5D Mark II right when it came out. Like I had a pre the firmware hack. So I was like at the bleeding edge. I met Shane Hurlbutt like, Within like a couple months, I was working with his team. Like I was on the ground floor of everything. I'm like, this doesn't happen all the time. So I pitched mm -hmm. this idea. I asked my friend, I'm like, you know, how bad is it writing a book? And he's like, well, you should talk to so-and-so over at Wiley. And I called her up and I pitched it to her and she's like, I like it. I'm like, okay. So I did the little forums and filled it out, gave it to her. And then she comes back. She's like, I get one book a year that I get to green lights, kind of like her, whatever, like gold you get to go yeah, through. Her golden buzzer. And she used her golden buzzer. Just give me the book. So I was like cool. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm actually excited about this. So I got the contract. And so I had a lawyer. So I went to my lawyer. I'm like, all right, like, tell me what I'm going to do. You know, I was all excited <laughs> to mark it up and be this hard negotiator. And he just looked back. He's like, literally every single person that wants to write a book would kill to have this contract. He's like, don't touch a thing, sign it. I'm wow. Like, I don't even get to negotiate. No lawyer has that ever said happened. that. I know. I was like, what the heck? So I got a yes. And Maybe I you had don't a have a good deal. lawyer. Yeah. Well, I'm, 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 got, I'm worried about your lawyer. <laughs> Did he actually read that? Yeah, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. But I got, you know, I sold out the first book and I got a second edition. So I, awesome. I feel like I'm, you know, maybe knocking wood. Luck. It was luck. Right place, right time. So what was the, the process of... How long did it take you to oh, put 500 see, just, pages together? So you ever have a chapter of your life that you don't want to revisit and then you get to talk about it a lot? That's when people ask me, what was it like writing the book? So <laughs> the original pitched idea was, and this is partly of my own naivety and also me thinking that editors know something. So I pitched the idea of kind of this tips and tricks and we kind of, I just roughed out like a rough outline and gave it to them. I'm like, oh, it's great. So then we started getting into it. They kept being like, well, 
we want all of this. And I'm like, well, it's not like a comprehensive how to make all video content. And they're like, no, no, that's what we want. So I didn't know I could push back. So I just kept accepting more work and like expanding everything. And so it kept taking longer and longer and it kept getting bigger and bigger. And like, well, we want you to teach writing in 20 pages or a lighting. And I'm like, you can't cover all of lighting in 20 no. pages. But what it did is it challenged me then is how do you take that limited space and actually make it usable? So it was kind of like, it really tested my patience, but it took about a year to write the first edition. So I always tell people, here's a book. This is what one year of your life looks like. And you know, it does look pretty impressive. But so how much equipment did you cover? Were you contacting uh, manufacturers and saying, hey, I'm writing this book, send me your stuff, and I'm going to put yep. it through the paces? And the problem with being that new is everybody was out of stock all the time, or they were like people out of their garage, and they didn't know how to vet if you were real or not. So yeah. a lot of it was... I mean, I bought a lot of gear off that advance. I would just have to get stuff in because like what was I thought you were see, actually buying it. They weren't loaning it to you. Some, some and some. But it yeah. was I mean, again, I was so bleeding edge. There was no I mean, nobody had yeah. time to build relationships. It was just basically right. the Wild West. And so what ended up happening is I thought I could write the whole book and then we would fit the images in. And they're like, no, no, we need the images as you're going. And I'm like, this is the most inefficient thing because I kept having to set up shoots to take pictures. But when I didn't know what I what I needed for the next chapter, I'd have to do it again. So I just felt like it was the most backwards way of working. I'm like, I could literally shoot all this stuff in like a day, and I could just have a shot list and get it. And they're like, nope. So it was a lot. It was it was not the easiest workflow that it should have been. What was the hardest part about writing the book for you? Sitting down and typing typing words. Yeah. I had, making yourself do that just that routine just 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 doing it because it's one of the things once you start getting stuff down then you can kind of figure out okay that's not good or now i'm just you know down a bunny trail but just forcing yourself to sit there and do it is i understand now when writers say that you just got to sit there and type so are you married to this book now forever because technology is going to keep changing so you can you can continually update and come out with new versions of the book i mean it's, I, the problem is is the isbn number has that dslr tag to it so i don't know if we can ever amend the title because i mean it it could go in perpetuity yeah right but because if we can't change that title it'll die at some point because we won't use that moniker yeah you know mirrorless right oh yeah that's i mean mirrorless but i mean what is mirrorless you know with DS, i mean it's just video content i mean this is our future here. We're all going to be on mobile oh, phones soon yeah. enough. So yeah, it's VR. crazy. So let's no, back no, up. no, 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 don't just strike that. Yeah. That's like no. the 3d. We're not talking VR. <laughs> yeah. Let's right. Get that out of all here. Right. Sorry. My bad. <laughs> let's back up. How did you get into the industry? Like where, what was your first step in the door? Uh, well, I'm weird cause I'm from Minnesota and I still don't exactly understand, but I was 10 years old and I woke up and I walked to my parents and said, I want to be a director. I didn't really know what a director was. I don't know where I learned the term. I just knew that someone... You didn't see it on a cartoon or something? No, I, don't, I, don't, I mean, maybe it was you know, Bugs Bunny and Daffy and the whole... Possibly. Um, and my, and the, the story goes, it was funny because my, my parents used to try to pay me to read books. They, it wasn't that I was dumb. I just didn't like to read. So they tried everything under the, you know, the book to try to get mm -hmm. me to read, and I would never read. When I decided that I wanted to be a director... I don't know how old your audience is, but we used to have libraries you used to go and check out books Under and 10. stuff. Under yeah. 10. So they won't know what this is. <laughs> but I went and I found a book by an old director, Frank Capra, who's my favorite director of all time. And it's like an 800 page, like it's the biggest book you could possibly get. And back in the day, they didn't have it there. So they'd have it shipped in. So it took like 
eight weeks for this book to be trucked to me. And I remember bringing it in the front door and I showed it to my mom, I'm like, Hey mom, I'm going to read this book. And God bless my mother. Um, she laughed at me. Of course she did. Cause she was just like, you won't read Dr. Seuss and you're going to read something that looks like the Holy Bible. And I read it cover to cover and started photocopying quotes and putting them on my wall. Uh, so I did it from a very young age. So my, uh, I don't even know how old we were. It's probably like, around that eight to 10 years. Um, our neighbors down the street used to have the VCR, but it was so old. You had the VCR in one box and the power supply and the controls were in the second box. Mm -hmm. Well, they had a video camera that went with that. So they upgraded to one box and so they gave it to my parents. So I had a video camera. So if you can imagine like a 10, 11 year old kid with two boat anchors on mm -hmm. either side to be able to run around to be portable with my camera, that's how I started filmmaking. No, that's great. Did you later on go to school for it? No, I was going to go. Um, so I actually was very privileged because of the fact that I was very driven from a young age. But in my high school, they had I had an amazing teacher, Dan Eckberg, and they built a TV studio. And his philosophy was, we're going to get the kids in here, but we're not going to do anything. The kids will run everything. So from ninth grade to 12th grade, we had I mean, there was oversight by the teacher, but literally we did everything. So what became in the future things like Amazing Race and Survivor, we did those shows first. So we had deals. We did it through uh, Chukotka uh, across Africa. We did it in the Mayan civilization. We had groups that would go out and go biking or doing these adventure trips. They would send us boxes, like cases of footage. We would log all the footage. We'd cut together packages. We would find experts, bring them in. We built a studio set. We would call in satellite time. So it'd be like funny. You're in like ninth grade calling in satellite time at, you know, whatever, $120,000 an hour. And they're like, seriously. And they would just be like, well, you got to have like your teacher, or like someone like this is our, we were going on live in like 45 minutes. And so we were just doing stuff. I mean, the president of the United States came to watch us. We were oblivious that this was like special. Yeah, this like, is a we, totally unique opportunity. Oh, this so is like unheard of. my mind, Barry. Yeah. yeah, no, it was great. And, you know, I you know grew up to run the whole thing before I graduated like high school, but it was like completely oblivious that this was kind of, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, that yeah, yeah, that's good. So I was going to go to college and I went and I was going to, I narrowed it down to USC and UCLA and I liked the U UCLA campus better. I liked the program at USC better. And then they lost me when they said that in order to get a senior film, they were only going to accept four and you had to write it. And I'm like, I'm not going to pay you $250,000 on the off chance. I'm not a writer, which is funny because yeah. I've written a book and now I am a writer. But at the time I didn't think I was a writer. Uh, I didn't want to you know, trust my future in a quarter million dollars. So I just said, screw it. And so I went for a Gen Xer. I was one of the first people to say, I don't think college is going to be my future. And I went a different route. And uh, so far, I'm doing all right. Wow. That freak out your parents? Um, my mom and I had about a 20-year battle. Yeah. And it was, I remember that liberating day, I was probably 37 years old, sitting at the kitchen table at my parents' house having dinner. And she just looked at me and she's like, I think you were right. <laughs> yes. That's victory, victory at last. Victory, yeah. So do you think in today's age, would you recommend for people to go to school for filmmaking or the creative arts? There, to me, there's only one reason to go to college for filmmaking. And I know this is going to sound somewhat sacrilegious because there are a lot of great programs where you learn stuff. The only reason to go to college is to get, you're basically buying a peer group. You're buying people that are all going to go into the industry and you're going to work your way up together. That's the reason. I don't think it's necessary because 
you know, you could teach theory and stuff, but a lot of my friends that went to film school, they didn't get the practical knowledge till they were done anyway. Right. Until you're in the working world. No. And really have hands on experience. And That's where you even get if you do get hands on, the technology is changing so fast that I don't want to pay fifty thousand, sixty thousand dollars a year for them to teach me this camera that four years from now, it's obsolete anyway. That's wasted time to me. So unless they can teach me you know, yep. theory or if they're giving me that peer group, otherwise, I mean, nowadays you can literally create content 24 hours a day all by yourself. I've always been blown away. At least um, there's a university near our studio in St. Louis. You know, the first two years, like you don't even get your hands on a camera. You're learning about all of this stuff. We've had, you know, guys come in, guys and girls come into our studio. It's like, what are the classes you are taking? Like you're spending 50, 60, 70 grand a year. And you don't even get to touch a camera till your junior year. That just kind of blows my yeah, mind. That doesn't make sense. I mean, it, again, if they're teaching, I think there's a lot of people that get blinded by gear because it's a shiny object and we all love it. That's why we're here in Vegas looking at this stuff. But understanding how to tell the story, understanding yeah. how a character, you know, some of that stuff you don't learn with a camera. But I also find that a lot of times I can watch a movie, I can watch how a scene's crafted and go, I get it. Then you try to do something like it and you're like, whoa. Yeah, I'm, why like, not? I'm like not even close to getting what they did. And it's that practice. So you have to have the balance of doing both. So if you are going to college and they're doing mostly theory on nights and weekends, you better be shooting stuff with your friends. If you sit there for two years, not doing that, you're not doing yourself any favors. Can you even watch a movie or do you just like so into how it was lit and like the technical side of it that you, noticed? I know I found a great movie when I get sucked in and I don't think about it. Yeah, like every no, once in a while, you're just true. like, I remember, you know, everybody talks about, I'm, I was, I'm too young to have had the Star Wars as my seminal theater experience. But for me, probably the one that did it the most was The Matrix. I remember after the opening sequence, I was just like, I don't understand what's going on. I I don't know what world we're in, but you got me. And you just, the whole time you just, when the movie ended, it was just like time had evaporated from your body. I remember that. Um, And that, that is when you watch something special. I I used to think, because people would always say, well, you're going to ruin filmmaking if you you know, start picking it apart. What I found that if you watch a horrible movie, there's a good chance that something or someone that was behind the scenes did something amazing and you can find it. So you can find beauty in the awfulness. But then I find when I see something that truly is brilliant, it's even more brilliant because you just understand how difficult it is to make that happen. And so I find that almost across the board, I enjoy watching movies and TV even more than I ever have. For our audience who hasn't had a chance to look at your stuff yet, how, how would you define yourself? What's your style as a director and a cinematographer? Well, it's... <laughs> can you define it? No, I, I don't think I can. Uh, when I started out, we used to have demo reels, whether you were a director or a cinematographer, and they were very siloed. Like, mm-hmm. you're the car guy. You're the food guy. Right. You're the you know talent guy, whatever it was. And you would send out your reels and you get hired off that, but you could never move to another thing. Like if an agency loved you working with you, but you were cars, you could never shoot product. Just even though you could light it, there's no reason you couldn't. Uh, they just didn't let you. Nowadays, it's odder to be a specialist because there's not those same silos. So you kind of have to do everything, but it's really hard when you do everything to be really good at something, mm-hmm. you know, because you're kind of going back and forth. So I think my, my specialty is, taking something that shouldn't look as good as it does but by putting me on the job i give you something better than it would have been had i not been there that's but interesting because you know in the photography realm you almost have to specialize in one thing yeah, yeah it's, it's like almost you cannot in rare cases some of the legends are able to have like food and lifestyle in their portfolio yeah but for the most part in photography 
Hands I, down, you can. And I mean, there's still, I mean, if you're, you know, a top top tier DP or director, you know, a lot of times you'll, they'll come to you for certain styles. Like Guy Ritchie gets certain styles of commercials or certain styles of movies. They're not mm-hmm. going to go have him, you know, do the color purple remake, you know, Guy Ritchie style. It's not going to happen. So th- at some point there is, but just in mine, you know, the, I get, I don't have enough defining that people kind of a pigeonhole. They just like projects. Yep. They're like, oh, you did that too? So. I don't know if that's necessarily good or bad. If I had a specialty, maybe I would, you know, have a different career path. But as of now, that hasn't happened. Some of some of your stories did surprise me, like the the uh, unveiling of the new logo for the Timberwolves. When I first clicked on that, I, I had no idea that story was going to go where it went. It was a complete 180 for me. Yeah, well, I've been working with the Timberwolves now for a couple of years, and it was kind of fun. It's weird because now I haven't I I shot like no sports until a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Now it's like, oh, you're the sports guy. I'm like, no, I, you know, some of the stuff you see is sports, but I'm like, you look at my overall you know, client list. It's just a small portion, but uh, growing up in Minnesota, I was there for the opening season when they were in the Metrodome and they ad hoc all these seats together. You know, I, so I've, I've, I've lived this story because I'm a basketball fan. So it was kind of one of those things when my client called me, you're like, we would like to help, you know, have you help tell the story. I'm like, uh, and you're gonna pay me for them. I'm like, I'm in, you know, this is, this is fantastic. Um, but it was kind of fun doing something a little bit different than what we've done with sports in the past or with the, in their franchise in particular. Um, it was kind of fun where you were able to do a little bit of telling a story through the characters. You're doing a little bit of storytelling through the visuals and you're kind of marrying it all together and making it work. And I think it turned out pretty well. It was a great piece. Absolutely. Thanks. So in terms of your last, you know, 10 or 12 jobs, which ones stand out? Which ones have been like your favorite to work on? Uh, well, since the Timberwolves ones is new, uh, that one comes to mind. But I think it was because a lot of times with corporate, you, how would you say it? it you don't get a lot of creative freedom. You know, they always yep. talk a great game when they hire us. Oh, we love this. We love shadows. We love moody. And they get there and it's just it, everything that they said that they wanted to do goes away. And, you know, we'll tell this story. No, we're going to put in 800 marketing pieces and it doesn't make sense to anybody. And so at the end of the day, you get paid, you do what you can, but it's not like you wake up like, Oh man, I want to show someone I did this where the Timberwolves piece is one of those. We're just uh, finishing up uh, a feature film. I got a couple pickup shoots, uh, uh, shots next week and then uh that's wrapped so a uh, picture lock is may 15th and it goes into scoring and sound and that's been my baby for the last two years and i'm really proud with how that's coming along um that was kind of one of those outlets that you know you guys being artists i'm sure at some point you're going through your career you know you're making money you're doing stuff but you're just like i literally am doing nothing that stimulates me creatively i have to do something or i'm yeah. going to die that was that film i was you know I just needed to do something crazy, and I did. And uh, it's kind of fun now seeing it come to fruition. How hands are? Oh God, I can't even talk today. How hands on? He's are dead you? already. It's day one. My throat is killing it's me. Day one. You went way too hard drink. last have night, right? You know what? I need a drink. I think that's the problem. Somebody get this man. I'm having drink. water. I think I need a whiskey. Yeah, you guys both messed up. You got ginger ale and water. <laughs> I know. I mean, I'm, it I'm it looks like I, alcohol. I'm sailing high. I'm drinking. What is the deal with me? Uh, no, I wanted to ask about how involved you are with the entirety of the process. Like your color grading is really pretty. Are you sitting on top of the guy doing that? Are you doing that yourself? How involved are you? It depends. It, it varies from job to job. It's actually kind of interesting because I have kind of a hybrid role. There are certain jobs. I, I was technically the DP on um, the Timberwolves piece, but I was kind of also co-directing it with my client. And I was also kind of part producing it over here. So it kind of depends on how 
A, how big their budget is, B, how much time it'll take in totality. Because sometimes, you know, they'll book me for a couple of days, but then I'm on to another job, but then they're doing the color grading. And even though I'd want to go in and do it, I'm just not available because they're not willing to, you know, pay a second person to be in there. Mm -hmm. If I have the time, sometimes I'll go in there just to give some guidance. So I, I, there's not a, there's not a hard and fast rule on that. How are budgets these days? Tiny. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like I missed the heyday because that's what everybody says, you know, it's always mm -hmm. great right before they got in. <laughs> um, you know, there was a lot of, especially coming from Minnesota, there was a lot of, you know, you had everything from Prince Purple Rain. You had the Grumpy Old Men series. We had Mighty Ducks. We had, you know, during the 90s, it was just booming and I was not yet doing it full time. And so kind of about the time I got in, incentives started popping out around the country and kind of we lost interest as being a major hub. And what I've noticed happening over time is that the budgets get smaller, but yet a lot more productions happen. So I keep telling people, A, if you want to be in this business, you chose it. So stop complaining. And number two, so yeah, you don't get the $50,000 job that you used to, but you also would only work, you know, whatever, once, twice a month, you know, they were, they were much farther spread out. And what I love, I don't necessarily like saying I have to work more to earn the same amount, but I love the fact that now I get to work on my craft all the time. And I think that's, so I just, I guess I look for the positives and the change as opposed to just the bad parts. Yeah. I know states have really been pushing their tax credits for film commissions. I mean, every state's film commission is pushing pretty hard. Do you feel like that's diluted the budgets? Because so much content's being created? No, because it's really the separation between budgets. You usually have your sub 3 million features and your 100, 100 million plus features. Like the whole middle ground basically doesn't exist anymore. And if you do have a film that's like a five, six, ten million dollar movie, eight million of that went to one or two stars. And it's really just a budget like we're doing a million dollar film. So it's it's not you know, functionally for below the line, there's no difference between those. You just get maybe get to work with Woody Harrelson versus, you know. And you've, other... you've done a few features, right? I have, yes. So I've, I've worked both on, actually, a completely random story, since we're there. Um, the, <laughs> we're very random people. The, in, high, in junior high, when you get to go to career day, you know, you get to go to career day. Well, since I knew what I wanted to do and be a director, uh, being in Minnesota, I'm like, well, I'm not going to go with my dad, who's a teacher, and my mom, who's a nurse, because I'm not going to do those things. So I actually called around, and they were shooting the original Mighty Ducks, and I got to go be the VIP on set for the entire day. I got to interview, interview Joshua Jackson, hang out with Emilio Estevez. I was like on set the whole time, just VIP. And like, that was my career day. I have pictures of me on the set. And I was like, what happened here? <laughs> so I was again, spoiled. I mean, I did the work to get it. But when Jingle All the Way came in with Arnold Schwarzenegger, it was when we were high school. And my friend really, really wanted to go. Like, he's like, I want to go meet Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm like, but hey, you're not just going to go over and meet Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I'm like, it's cold. In Minnesota, the last thing we want to do in the winter is go stand outside. So I'm like, I don't want to go. <laughs> so he convinced me, like, we're going to go. And I said, well, if we're going to go, we're going to make it quick. You know, we're not going to linger. We're just going to make a move if you want to, whatever. And so we go there and they're shooting on a street corner. So basically two whole corners are all blocked off by the ADs for filming. Then you have one side where they have their pool of extras that they can pull in. And then you have the one side that basically is all of us rubberneckers looking, you know, how do we see it? And so we were originally in that group and I said, well, we're getting nowhere here. So I'm like, let's just cross the street and go over with the extras and maybe we can, you know, there's less people we can see. He's a little bit nervous, but we went over there and I realized very quickly, we're going to see or do nothing. So I said, well, it's cold. So I said, okay, next time the second AD turns around, we're going to go out right across the street because I can see there's catering and there's trucks and stuff. I'm like, those are 
those are the non-important people. They're not really watching. So I'm like, if we get there unseen, <laughs> then maybe we can be there. And he's like, Sneak we're not, not going to do it. We're not going to do it. And I'm like, well, I'm not staying out here. So if you want to stay, come with me. So I said, ready, go. And I ran across the street. And he stayed on the other side. And so I walk over there and I'm you know, trying to act all cool. And of course, the second AD saw me comes running over, just headset on screaming. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm just a PA. Nobody's told me what to do yet. Grabs me at the scruff of his neck, drags me over to the side of the street. He's like, make sure nobody comes on set. Your job is to make sure nobody comes on set. So I'm standing there, my friends across the street and I'm just like, I don't know. So then I'm working now and I'm sitting there and like within 15 minutes, Arnold Schwarzenegger comes walking down the street, comes right up to me, shakes my hand. Thanks. Walks right on by. So my friend's oh, nice. sitting there on the other side of the street. So I'm technically uncredited PA on jingle all the way. Nice. Good job. <laughs> so how are you winning jobs now? Are you marketing yourself or are people finding your work and calling you? It's a little bit of both. Um, when I do some of my training, it's something we talk about a lot. I think artists by our nature, um, we don't do a good job talking about ourselves and saying what we do. We kind of just think if we do great work, magic happens. And that definitely is not the case. So I, I try to, pardon me. I, I basically try to either find projects, you know, like the Timberwolves or something like that, that I can share. That's just organically, it's fun to share and it doesn't seem, feel like you're forcing it, you know, do some of the corporate things where like, Hey, I did your head and put on some graphics and you're talking about some widget. You know, if I start sharing that in Facebook or putting out, you know, no one's like, what is this? Who cares right. about this? So I tell people you need to find and work on a passion project. And the passion project has to be something that my categorization of it, whether it's just something you create yourself or you, you know, find someone who has it, it's something that they literally will die without creating it. Like every day they're thinking about it, talking to everybody, trying to figure out ways to get it done. And the reason I tell people they want to do that is generally those look better than just boring jobs, but also by the nature, everyone's talking about them. You know, the director's talking about it, the writer's talking about it. And that whole, like in your little community, it spreads. And that's the sort of thing that gets people to know about you. So I do a combination. I do some training. I do some writing. You know, I'm on podcasts. I do webinars. You know, I'm speaking here at NAB. I wrote a book. Um, and then some of it's, it's still a people business. It's meeting people, talking to people, letting people know what you do and reminding them often because I have people, you know, friends that work in big companies and you meet with them over dinner and they're like, oh yeah, we hired this guy to come do all the shooting for us. And I'm like, guys and they're like oh we didn't think about that and you're like yeah you gotta you gotta be in there because when people are busy you gotta you gotta you gotta find ways to do that where you're not the annoying person that's just like i do video i do video do you need video i need video and you're like (laughs) shh stop it so i I think it's a little bit of all of those one of the other things that you do that we haven't talked about yet is coaching you work a lot with actors to coach them and kind of when you're not how the hell did that that's a totally separate thing i do i do both so when i when i get the chance i love working with actors both I mean, professional actors are the best because they're a rare breed of people that, I mean, if you think about this, you know, I think, what is it like? I think people are mostly afraid of the IRS, then death, then talking in front of people. <laughs> death so, I mean, in Texas. Literally, Public you know, speaking. one of the mo- biggest fears of humanity is being in front of people. So actors and actresses literally go at their worst in front of a camera that is recorded of them doing things that most of the time is a failure. I mean, it's a really interesting, I know there's an interesting way to think about it. Well, you think, I mean, literally they get rejected for the roles for a number of reasons. And then when they're doing the performance, as you're going through to find it, most of what is chosen isn't right. So like their whole life every day, even if they're super successful is we don't like it. We don't like it. That looks weird. You have a booger hanging in your nose. Why are you crying? I mean, it's just 
ripping you apart. And the fact that they get up every day and do it, I think is an extraordinary thing. So I, I love them. They have a special place in my heart. And then working with non-talent, talent, which seems to be all the rage, uh, especially in corporate, like, we're going to go find our real customers. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever put someone on camera that's oh. uncomfortable. Oh, it's yeah, like we have. the worst ever. Yeah, it's a bad thing. Yeah, it's and it's basically one of those, all we do. Yeah. <laughs> it is. And it's one of those things where when you can kind of put them at ease and figure out kind of how to connect with them, you, you're not going to necessarily turn them into Tom Hanks or, you know, Al Pacino, but you might get something that doesn't look like a wooden stick figure. I learned this the hard way. Oh, one of my first films when I was in junior high, I cast my dad because my dad tells the best stories. You know, it's like, you just mesmerize his voice, everything. And basically his character was a guy that laid in a bed and he was like dying and he just told stories. I'm like, well, my dad can do that. That's easy enough. And yeah, my cousin, who was my best friend, like, you know, everybody knew my dad and we walked in there and then the first day I had to fire my dad. He was <laughs> oh, so no. bad. I had to fire my own dad. <laughs> and I was just like, what, what happened to my dad's like, I mean, it was just like, he went from like fine to just yeah. wooden stiff. I mean, it was just awkward. Like you just, you wanted to leave the room. It was so awkward. <laughs> oh God! And I'm like, wow, what does that happen? So I think part of me became inter interested at that point. What can make someone have that dramatic of a change? And how do you spot it before you're on set so you don't accidentally cast your dad? Do you think you could have fixed your dad knowing what you know now? Could you have coached no. him in the right <laughs> No. He was so so I, love my, I love my dad. He's been my biggest fan for my entire life. And no, there's no... No fixing I, I dad. I could probably get him to do a voiceover. That would be compelling. <laughs> but him, uh, there's something. He just goes stiff. And I, it, you, could, you could loosen it up, but it would just always... If you knew my dad, maybe if you didn't know him... You wouldn't think it's as bad, but when you know him, you know how much is lost, how much of that humanity is lost, and it's just not. What are some other things early on in your career that there were like big mistakes that stand out? You're like, oh god, only if uh, I would have had a better teacher, more experience. The uh, <laughs> well, I, see, the problem I had is I, I watched a lot of films, so I, I visually knew what I wanted to have in my head, but I kind of fell in this weird spot. Almost all of film had died by the time I was in junior high and high school. So we didn't grow up shooting 16 or 8 millimeter film. So I never had any of that. My dad and my brother did a lot of photography. I didn't like doing photography. So I didn't learn the whole dark room and exposure. So I just had really crappy video cameras that universally gave you awful pictures no matter what you did. So it was kind of like, you know, you do a lot of work and you're like, it still just looks terrible. So it was a very demoralizing thing. So when I did that project that my dad was on, a friend of the family's owned a uh, apartment building and I needed a location uh, hospital room, which we couldn't get. So he had an old coal basement that he emptied out and he says, you guys can build in here. So my dad helped me. We sheetrocked the whole wall and just made it white and brought in two beds and made a fake window. And I remember it was the first time I'm like, I got to light it because there was nothing in there. Mm -hmm. And so we built these bars and I came, it was that project and one quickly that followed after, which I don't really like to talk about, but I did a five episode sitcom that if the footage ever finds the light of day, my career will be <laughs> over. Uh, but oh, we got to hear about that. <laughs> those two projects I, I lit and I just kept seeing shadows. And so I just kept lighting more, which would create more shadows. So that first project, if you go back and look at it, we made it black and white, which makes it tolerable. But if I actually had color versions, I thought I came from a school of just add more light and you'll make it better. Mm -hmm. And so it was understanding, you know, how to soften the light, how to shape the light. The fact that shadows are okay to have, you don't need them to be gone. That was a process that I learned kind of because I was so frustrated by not being able to get what I wanted. It forced me to figure out why. And the why was the whole key. So now when you're getting a budget, where do you initially want to invest most of the budget in? What's most important me. for you? Do you? Yes. 
and that's not a joke. <laughs> whatever, <laughs> whatever the budget is, I want to take home as big of a piece of pie as I can. If I can get by with less people, if I can use less equipment, if I can get them to say we have whatever, five, 10, $25,000 and they'll let me spend it. I'll try to take whatever, $12,000 of it and dole out the rest so that I keep the most. All right. Let me, so, let me rephrase that question. Let's say you're doing a personal project and you have <laughs> a, a, like a million dollar budget. Where are you going to invest? And you got to spend it all. Where are you going to invest that? Is it, is, get... Are we talking feature? Sure. Talent. And I'm going to go get somebody that you recognize. I'm going to put as much money in that as humanly possible and scrimp on the rest. Where do you think you can chintz the most on, on budget? Lighting. Lighting. Uh, I do have sponsors of this podcast. Do we just lose them all? <laughs> yeah, you no. just shut down the podcast, Barry. No, no. <laughs> it's over now. I'm good. We, we, rang, we rang out the show on the first day. I'm sorry. Um, the reason I say lighting is a, a lot of people. I remember um, the first time I shot, I hired an ex uh, Hollywood DP that had moved back to Minnesota. He'd worked with like Brian De Palma and like Robert Strike. I mean, he was like legit. And I hired him. I went to actually go ask him for like, do you have a second AC that might work on my little film? And he's like, well, I'll do it. And I'm like, uh, well, then I realized why you don't work with the big people. Cause he walked into the rental house and got everything. Like, can, can I have one of those, two of those, three of those, one of those, one of those. And I'm like trying to figure out like, I'm like, do we need 67 lenses? Do we need 142 <laughs> lights? Like, I don't know. And when you give them it, they use them. But what's interesting is sometimes when you don't have it, you can get sometimes even better results because you sure, get more creative with what you have. It is. I mean, I, the, the story has been told a thousand times, but jaws is one of my favorite movies. And I just keep telling people, just imagine the yellow buckets. Those weren't in the script. Those are only there because jaws didn't work. And if you saw the shark, every time you saw those yellow buckets, we, we wouldn't remember the movie existed. So the idea that you sometimes have to be creative when you don't have everything you want. That's why I would say, with, you know, you need, Wait, I don't know this story. What, what's up well, with the yellow buckets? No, so, well, have you seen Jaws? Oh, yeah. When they shoot the barrels, that whole thing was invented because the shark didn't work. Ah. So all the times that you would see the buckets, you would have seen the fin of the shark swimming if the shark actually worked. <laughs> that was originally how they ah. were going to shoot it. It would have been a horrible movie. But the idea that the barrels represented when the shark came, when it disappeared, the symbolism, everything was just brilliant. Ah. Seeing Robert Shaw. Oh, yeah. Shoot yeah. It, Total accident. But I mean, just imagine Robert Shaw and you just keep seeing arrows going into the, you know, harpoons going into the shark with it bleeding all the time. It would have been like, what is this movie is silly, yeah. but it was not silly because they worked with less. So I think a lot of the films that are, the stories I like hearing about films is when they take something that they didn't, I mean, even like star Wars, part of the reason I got so angry at George Lucas for redoing the original star Wars is because that's not the movie anymore. All of us, when we put down a creative work, if we go back and look at it would change things. Like there's nobody that looks back and is like, Oh, that was perfect. I wouldn't change a thing. And for some reason, I know he has the uh, every right to, he's got the money to do it, but it's one of those things that I feel like Star Wars became part of, you know, the worlds when he put it out. And when he changes that, he takes away something. And I don't, I don't like that. I think they're having the same debate right mm -hmm. now with the bull and Times Square. They're adding stuff and you're right. changing the meaning by adding and subtracting. Right. Make a new movie if you want, but at some point you don't get to change those things. So, so the budget is usually in the hands of the producer to make sure we, you know, Get it all done and on budget. Are you working with a producer? Are you doing a lot of that yourself? It depends on the project. I, I'll give a shout out right now to producers if you have any that listen to the show. Mm -hmm. I, I really think that's a lost art form. I think what's happened is part of the reason I call myself a cinematographer now is I, I've always been a director. And I always thought it was wrong to call myself a cinematographer because I'm not what? a cinematographer. Well, because that's I mean, I knew how to do the work, but I came up when you, you had a job. 
Mm-hmm. You're this, you're that. You know, right. Very defined, very, very defined. Cut. And then it finally changed for me when I realized all my DP friends kept stealing my job by calling themselves directors. I'm like, well, if you can steal my jobs, I'm going to steal yours. <laughs> um, but it's, it's that it's something in your head where you just decide what am I, what am I not? But that goes to producers is people think that if you're a cinematographer, director, oh, you can just produce as well. And if you're ever working on a bigger project, the artistry side of your brain, you know, to tell stories and kind of come up with those genius moments, you need time. And when you're producing as well and you're worrying about is food coming in time, you know, that cord that's there, or someone needs to run to the store, mm-hmm. all those things are in your head. You never have the appropriate bandwidth in your brain to yeah. fully give over to the artist side. And so I feel that a lot of the clients either, you know, combined a producer with a director and they, that, that producer role, having a producer that will just basically make sure that it all runs will tell you when you have limits. Okay. You need to move on now. No, you don't get to buy another shark. You have to figure something out. Right. Like there's things that will happen that I think is a really a lost art form. Um, and I really like, you know, producers I can produce. It's very difficult if I'm the director and producer, if to not have additional help. Otherwise yep. I feel like I, yeah, the, the work suffers. So important. So I important. totally agree. So you came up in, on, on the bleeding edge of this, right? Yep. What are the challenges you think that are facing people now coming into this business? What are the hardest things for them to overcome? So someone who's not really been doing photography or video, what's the hardest thing for them now if they're going to get started with their career? Yeah, it's it's such a different world now. Everybody's able to create content. Everybody calls themselves a DP. Everybody calls themselves a director in, in, in many ways. I think, so what I think are it's probably facing? the same thing that we have. How do you stand out? How How do you, you know there's, I guess there's two, I think that people can have two separate skill sets. You can either be so talented visually that what you create, people just can't not fall in love with, you know, and there's very few of those people. There's very few people that you look at as an artist of like all time, but you have a lot of really good photographers. You have a lot of good DPs, you have a lot of good directors, but those great, just, you know, whatever you want to call them, the Tim Burton's, the, you know, Mm -hmm. Andy Warhol's just something where they just work. Well, either you're that person or you're not, or you can work toward that. But what I tell people that the easiest way to make money and to get work is to work on the people skill. Because, you know, I see people, I'm a director, I'm a DP, I do this, I do that. And most of the time now when I'm talking to my clients, I'm a problem solver. So if I know you need video created, I ask you, what are the problems? And a lot of my clients are like, well, we don't have people to write the scripts. We don't have this. We don't have, and you find out, and as soon as they view you as, oh my gosh, you're going to solve my problems then you'll never lose that client. Mm -hmm. And then that client usually has enough budget where you do several work. So then you keep working on your craft. And I think a lot of times now when you're an artist, people think you can be less of a people person because you're artsy and you're weird. And I'm like, Nope, the people skill and those relationships are paramount. So I think, if you can get the visuals that are undeniable, great. Otherwise work on your people skill. Yeah. We say all the time, this business is all about relationships. Absolutely. Period. So I would say that would be the biggest thing I would tell people. All right, work on your people skills, people. <laughs> so you're, you're also a Zeiss ambassador, correct? I am. How did that come about? I think a lot of young kids today, like they want nothing more to say than like I'm sponsored by so-and-so. Like, yeah. that's, I think it's a huge thing now that people want. So yeah, how did that come I'm about? I'm just blase about it. Whatever. No. The, uh, so it, it came about kind of, it was, I don't know if any of the stories are actually funny or not, more ironic. So I, when the 5D3 came out, uh, my friend uh, Mitch uh, that runs Planet 5D, um, we found out that Canon was not going to do a launch video. So we're like, well, we're not going to get officially do a launch video, but if we do it right and we get the right partners involved, we'll be the de facto launch video for Canon's flagship 
thing. So we set it up and it was a really weird thing because nobody knew exactly when the camera was going to land. And because Canon wasn't giving us a pre-release model, we had like eight orders in from different vendors. So like whoever got it first would like, you know, couriered over to us. And so we had like backup plans because we need more than one camera because if it failed. So we had all this, but it was basically everybody was on like hold. It was like, you know, waiting for like the launch orders to go in to invade the country. And everyone's like, okay, we're going tomorrow. And I was like, okay. And it was an overnight shoot. And so we were putting this whole thing together and, you know, Mitch had, you know, all these, you know, you know, having a media outlet and stuff. He was kind of doing the producing sales side, but then it was funny because as he was talking to these people, he realized he didn't speak the language of that. So he started having me on these phone calls and I would start talking about what I wanted to do. I'm like, Oh, we'll do behind the scenes and we could use your stuff like this and that. And then we're like, Oh, we like the way you talk. And so Zeiss was a sponsor of that film. And, um, I actually went above and beyond and created extra content for them because we had so much extra footage and they really liked it. And they said, you know what? We have these people that shoot great stuff, but it's rare that you can find someone that can talk and connect, you know, beauty of art but how do you actually get it done and so they approached me and said we'd like to have you as one of our ambassadors so it was very flattering um and i work with uh rich and nicole and snail and stuff for that they're great people awesome so do you only use zeiss or are you no. up what are your favorite lenses uh see that's like asking what's You're getting into favorite. that equipment thing yeah no <laughs> that's a valid question what are your settings i think <laughs> What's your favorite F stop? Auto, auto setting. It's the A. He's P for using. professional. Uh, I would say. So I use. I have. I had the old ZE series of ZE and ZF lenses. I now have Millivis lenses that are their newer upgrade from that. I have a set of uh, Super Speed CP2s, um, and I'm actually probably the next purchase I'm going to get is a compact zoom because those are sexy. Mm -hmm. They are. Well, again, it's all about need. Yeah. I can trust Zeiss to get me what I want. Actually, that whole Timberwolves piece was all shot on uh, CP2s and uh, Milvis lenses. So that's outside of the drone footage. That's 100% Zeiss. Um, but I mean, it's it's weird because Zeiss gives me a great neutral platform to shoot with. But if I'm doing sometimes a period piece or something, I have a set of Leica R lenses I had converted. And I absolutely love just kind of the way those feel for certain projects. And then it's I when I tell people lenses are dangerous, they're like a drug. It's kind of like you get addicted, you'd never stop. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So like if you go on eBay, I say you have to have, it's like gambling. I have $200 in, an, in a PayPal account and I can't ever spend more than that. Otherwise you just start bidding on stuff and then suddenly you're like, wait a minute, where did I spend yeah, $1,200 yeah, and <laughs> why am I ever going to use this lens? And you know, it, it, it's a, it's a bizarre world. So what I, what I really try to do is the reason I invest now in my Zeiss lenses is because I can kind of ride those through most of my career. Yeah. You know, the build quality, everything's great. And yeah, a lot of these forever. starter lenses, I don't want to be in the process of, there's enough technology that will change that will force me to buy. So if I can kind of lock in saying, Hey, I don't need to do anything for 10, 15 years and I'm good. Yeah. That's better than try constantly chasing upgrades on everything. So outside of your future coming out, what's next for you? What's on the horizon you're looking forward to? Does rest count? <laughs> no, rest doesn't count. It's, you don't I mean, strike me as someone that rests yeah, very often. I, I don't <laughs> buy that for a minute. Uh, well, the see, it depends on who you talk to. I'm, I am super excited. Well, I got, you know how they, are you guys freelancers? I used to be for a long time. Okay. Yeah, so, well, you'll, you'll understand this. So the summer I get most of my jobs, unless I'm doing like, you know, a, a feature, but those are less, you know, you don't get those every day. So a lot of them are one, two, three day jobs. So it's mostly you're just chunking along going from job to job. Well, I've now have four jobs 
two directing features, a DP feature, and a uh, DP to uh, launch a new television series that all have given me offers that all four shoot at the exact same time. Ooh. Oh, wretched. So That's so maddening. It is like, I'm like, that would just be, if I'm like, can you guys move it two weeks? Like, is there flexibility? And they're like, nope. nope. For every reason, there's something that causes yeah. them to fall. So now I'm playing the game of like, I want to make sure one of them lands before <laughs> you turn the other ones away so that you don't sit there with nothing. Um, but for various reasons, each of those would be pretty a pretty fun thing to work on this summer. So I, I'd say that would be the next big thing. Got a lot of, you know, normal production stuff in there, but nice. There's a lot of what I do that I say pays the bills that I don't stay up going, man, I'm going to watch that again. Cause I'm so proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you want people to go to take a look at your work and learn more about you? Um, we well, can go on uh, my website, Barry Anderson. Uh, Anderson has two S's.com. Um, I'm also that way on Facebook and on Instagram if you want to follow me there. Um, otherwise, I do a monthly uh, webinar with uh, Pro Video Coalition, and I do some writing for different blogs that's out there. So if you do the Googles, if you do Barry Anderson with two S's. Uh, Who's the Barry Anderson with one S? What's he doing? Yeah, he's, he's an artist. So if you just uh, go to that, so it's, confusing. it's very confusing. How many so clients like, have been like, nah, I don't think he's the right for this. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, that's some really interesting stuff that you do. And you're like, no, I don't. I, it's like. You need I'm to not, bring that out down. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I it well, I, I, it's one of those things where you can't control other people's names. So no. I'm more un- unique than he is. He might have better there you go. client list. Who knows? Nice. Well, cool. uh, we appreciate you stopping by. We know it's a busy week. So thank you for, for coming by. Yeah, it's been a great conversation. We yeah. really appreciate it. Appreciate you guys having me on and yeah. uh, look forward to talking to you guys again. Nice. Cool. To download this episode and the entire season of uh, our season four at NAB, you can go to RGGEDU podcast. Dot com. Thanks. We'll see you later. We need a better sign-off. We need to come <laughs> up with a jingle. Okay, a jingle. let's get a jingle. We'll get a jingle. All right, we'll write one in between this and the next podcast. Right, we have 10 minutes. That's all for now. Be sure to listen to more RGGEDU podcasts. And if you don't, I will know. My little birds are everywhere. This podcast is brought to you by Sakonic. Makers of a complete range of photo and cine light meters for professionals and passionate amateurs who care about the craft of photography. Sakonic meters help you get it right in camera, so you can save time in post-production, which will let you focus on improving and being more creative. Head over to Sakonic.com for more information about how their products can help you be a better photographer every day.